grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because of advances in technology, we see many things that are happening in real time. People are able to capture tornadoes at the moment when they are occurring. Meteorologists are able to give more or less accurate forecasts of hurricanes, the paths they will take, the places they will hit, and when. They are able to forecast snowfall amounts and the locations they will impact, for the most part. Because of technology, people are able to see and circulate things happening in wars. We seem to be there, right in the middle of the action in this Russian war against Ukraine. We see the bombs hitting buildings and facilities, whether they are military facilities or not. We see the casualties of war, soldiers, civilians, men, women, pregnant women, children. We see how within four weeks, over three million people have suddenly become refugees, and the numbers are increasing. We see a president who played one on TV as a comedi comedian, now as a real president. And we see this president become a worldwide hero before our eyes because of his courage and bravery against all odds in this atrocious war. The pretext for this war is that the Ukrainians have done something wrong when all they want is to be free to decide who they want to be as a country. Because of an old kind of technology, print media, we read about what people make of human suffering and tragedy. We see that in our gospel reading for today from Luke. In our text, Jesus is addressing his disciples in a large crowd that had been following him because of his teachings and because of his miracles. Not everybody there believed in him, but everybody was religious. They were Israelites. You could not be a true Israelite if you were not religious. God had called them and set them apart as his people and also as a people through whom the world will come to know the only true God and worship him alone. The people were wanting to know why bad things happen to good people. Now, they didn't ask the question directly. They made a statement, but there was a question behind that statement of fact. These victims of Pilate were good people in the sense that they were offering sacrifices to God in the temple, God's house, the holy place. And they are murdered right there by Pilate and their blood mixed with the sacrifices. Pilate violated all kinds of Jewish holiness laws by sending his troops into the temple area to murder the Galilean Jews. The incident was well known and now, here is someone who knew the secret things of God. He has been teaching many things with authority, so perhaps he would confirm to them what they suspected, that these victims were more sinful than the other Jews. They had apparently, even though unspoken, drawn the conclusion that the victims broke God's law in a big way, and this was the punishment God had inflicted on them. You know, like someone might say, nothing bad happens without a reason. The reason was obvious for them in this case. 
They just needed confirmation from Jesus that what they suspected was true. Or to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they were actually thinking that these were innocent people, righteous people, serving God in truth, and they did not deserve this terrible thing that happened to them. If such was the case, then what is the point of worshiping God and offering sacrifices to him? Perhaps it was not even worthy to serve God. You would think that based on that logic, though unstated, Pilate himself, who engaged in such an unimaginable cruelty, should not even have been ruling at that time. Something terrible should have happened to him in return. You know, like some religions teach, and which a whole lot of people believe, he should have been hit by karma. Now, just to be sure, karma is not a Christian teaching. But here was Pilate, still ruling, to think that this same Pilate, who would seem to have done everything he could to wiggle out of deciding whether to have Jesus crucified or not, could do such a thing as described by those who mentioned it to Jesus, was shocking. But he did that, and nobody could do a thing about it. These people making the connection between sin and tragedy were not totally wrong. Bad things do happen to us because of sin. But this is in a general sense. There is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and suffering. If there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and suffering, can you even begin to imagine how many times in our lives that God would inflict punishment on us because of our particular sins? Can you imagine what he would do, us, do to us every day since we sin every day? Sin is breaking God's law, whether we are aware of it or not. It happens in thought, word, and deed because of the I, the I and me issues that we have. Whether we acknowledge it or not, this I refuses to go away. It is this same I that may make me think that if I did it, it is not so bad, but if somebody else did the same thing, it is terrible. It doesn't work that way. As far as God is concerned, sin is not a matter of degree where one sin is greater than another, and therefore the consequences for that sin is also greater. Sin is sin. Every now and then, you hear in the news about some terrible tragedy. And I'm not talking hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis now. You hear about attacks on Christians who were engaged in worship. They were gunned down or bombed. And several people died and many more injured. You hear about it happening in Nigeria, in Egypt, in Ethiopia, and in some predominantly Islamic countries. What happened in some of those cases was during the very act of worship. If they were participating in the Lord's Supper at that time, it's like armed people stormed the church and murdered the worshipers in the very act of participating in the Lord's Supper. You could say that in that case, what happened amounted to the perpetrators mingling the blood of the worshipers with the holy things on the altar the bread and the wine, the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these folks who reminded Jesus about the incident with Pilate were around today, you wonder 
what they might say about these incidents in our day. Were these Christians who suffered that way more sinful than other Christians, than you and me? But we don't have to wonder about what Jesus would say to them. It will be the same thing he said to them in our reading. Do you think that these Christians were worse sinners than all the other Christians because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Unless you repent. Repent. That's what he told them. He says it to us too. He says it to every Christian. Repent. You may remember what God told the prophet Jeremiah when he became overwhelmed by his task of calling on the Israelites to repent. He was terrified by what the unrepentant people were willing to do to him. He went back to God and said to him, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And ever I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my world, my wound grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. God said to him, if you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let these people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, repentance is a big deal for those who follow God. There is no exception made for anyone, regardless of how we are serving God. Jesus reminded the crowds and the disciples of a different incident, this time not a gruesome murder, but a natural incident, a tower falling on 18 people and killing them on the spot. This was also apparently well known to the people. This incident, too, was not the result of a particular sin committed by the 18. They were not more sinful than others who did not suffer such a tragedy. Again, this and any other tragedy in the world should not be seen as a sign of judgment on specific people for specific sins. Rather, people should look at these things and recognize their need for repentance, because without repentance, something more horrifying than the two horrors will happen. Jesus was speaking to people who were convinced that they were the people of God, and therefore the idea of repentance was not necessary for them. Jesus always knew the hearts of people. He knows our hearts too. What he said to them applies to us too. We are his through his own choosing and doing. Let there be no doubt about that. But even people who are his and live in this world will have no lack of sin. Sin is always crouching at our door like it did with Cain. Cain did not heed God's warning and he killed his brother Abel. And even after that, he did not repent, but was rather angry at God. By so doing, he damaged his relationship with God forever because he would not repent. Satan crouches at our doors too, and he gets in somehow to do damage to our relationship with God. But the damage he does need not be permanent. Jesus is making a sure and certain promise that he is standing with us 
even when we sin. And he wants us to change our minds and our behaviors concerning sin. He wants us to turn around and look to him in faith for forgiveness. That is what repentance is. It is sorrow over sin and turning to Jesus in faith for forgiveness. All of us Christians need to examine our lives daily and we will realize that we do need to repent. Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree that was not bearing fruit, even though everything necessary had been done for it to do just that. The owner of the vineyard said for three years he had been coming to look for fruit from the tree and there was none, no fruit, no repentance. So finally, it was time to get rid of it. He did not plant that tree as a decoration for the vineyard. He expected fruit. That fruit is repentance. So he gave the order, cut it down. But the vine dresser would not cut it down, not right away anyway. He said to the landowner, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. It is obvious that the landowner is God the Father and the vine dresser is Jesus. Jesus is talking about his persistent love for you. He's making clear that he's going to stick with you and encourage you to repent so that when the last day comes, you might not perish but re remain a member of God's family. Jesus is giving us plenty of opportunity to remain in the family of God by persistently interceding for us. He pleads for God's patience. If you ever feel troubled that something you have done is too late to repent of, Jesus is saying to you, no, it is not. The one more year he asked for remains as long as we have life. And that one year is not to be spent bashing other people about their sins or thinking that we are less sinful than they are, but about living in repentance ourselves and staying connected with Jesus. We are constantly being pushed away from him by Satan. If you are getting pushed to sin, push back. If you fail, remember that you have the one whose love for you is persistent. He has no plans of giving up on you. You belong to him and not to your sins. You are always a work in progress, but with Jesus by your side. And that's a good thing for you. Amen.